it's it's a subject that obviously is at the core of a lot of Jewish practice, a lot of Jewish ideology, a lot of Jewish philosophy. Um, and I want to really deal with a fundamental question uh, surrounding this topic. And that topic is Torah study. Uh, as we know, Torah study is the national pastime of the Jewish people. You look at any time in, in, in history, uh, in Jewish history, go back thousands of years and you read Josephus and he talks about you know, how the people were just obsessed with Torah study. And even today, like I, I, I uh, did the math, and it seems likely that there are more people studying the Torah than any other like, individual document or a set of documents or set of tenets. Um, you have thousands upon thousands of students across the globe uh, that have dedicated their lives to Torah study. You know, it's in the basic regime of the world, and you have thousands and thousands of students, 12 hours a day, studying Talmud and studying Torah and, and you know, and, and reading the Torah. And, and, and you know, what's, why, why, why are we studying the Torah so much? You know, I think that's a very fundamental question that, that I think has to be addressed. You know, we, you know we, we, we're going through now the, the, right, we just finished Genesis, right? Fantastic. And we're spending a lot of time learning about Genesis and reading about it. And, you know, now we're going to open up Exodus. And we're going to talk about Exodus. And we read the stories, read the narratives, read the laws, and ask questions. And really invest a lot of time, if you think about it. If it's, what, it took 35 or 45 or 12, 18 months. I don't know how many sessions it took to get through Genesis. 18, 18 months to the day. 18, 18 months. 18 months. So how many sessions is that? A lot. That's a lot, right? You know, we're talking about 50, some, uh, probably 40, 40, 50 sessions. Like, that's a lot of time uh, to invest in, you know, in a topic. And that's Genesis. And that's a sliver of the Torah, a slide, very important slice of the Torah. And then there's the rest of the Torah. And then there's the Talmud. And you open up the Talmud. And how many books are you talking about? How many? 63 books. You know, and then you open up the commentaries and, and the great works of Maimonides and the medieval commentaries. And a lot of human hours have been invested in studying Torah. More than any other document, more than any other ideology, you know, why are we investing so much time in Torah study? What are the benefits, or what are the reasons? What's the, you know? So obviously, it sounds sacrilegious. You're like, Rabbi, are you trying to say that we shouldn't? Be? No, I'm saying not. But I want to go through some of the classical reasons uh, that we find in Jewish literature discussing why we study Torah. Because I think when you know why we do it, and when you know what the benefits are of Torah study. Right then, I think the study could be much more effective. Like when you realize what you're doing, like you know. And I, when I started off preparing this presentation, I said, you know what? I think I could find ten different things that are that the, you know that are in Jewish sources reasons why we study Torah. I ended up with seventeen. I think I added another one today, eighteen. Um, so there's an enormous amount of benefits that come along with Torah study, and reasons why we do it. And, and in some of these things, Torah is the only way to do it. You know, there's some aspects of, of life that can be achieved only through a Torah story. Only, only, that's, all, that's it. Right. Nothing else to get you that end goal. Um, so, uh, you know, I think statements like we find in the Rambam. The Rambam, he, um, very much a rationalist. You know, we talk about Maimonides and how he was, well, he, he had a job. He wasn't like one of those... You know, scholars that just sat in you know the back of the room studying. He had, he, he was a physician and he studied Torah as well. And and he gives a prescription of what someone should do. Like what should be the brain? He says everyone has to go get a job. Has to. Very important. Uh, but everyone also has to study Torah. Well, then what's the breakdown? Well, you know, what do you do? How do you how do you ensure that you have both? That you you, know, you spend time working, time studying. He says, well, you work three hours a day, and you study nine hours a day. 
He's like, this is not for the rabbis or the stars. This is for everyone, You're just the average Joe. Nine hours a day, but three hours of work, that, that, that's good. That's a nice breakdown. Um, but, th- that, you know, that's, well, it sounds pretty crazy, right? But, but the, yeah, the, yeah, if only the average Jew studied three hours of Torah, you know, instead of watching five hours of Netflix or, you know. Uh, so that attitude is a prevalent attitude in Judaism. Like, Torah study above all. Torah, the greatest mitzvah in Torah, 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 Torah. What's the deal? You know, why, what's so special, what's so unique about Torah study uh, that, uh, that uh, grants it uh, to, uh, to be, you know, to be on such a, uh, held on such a high pedestal, high regard in, in Jewish life, uh, you know, that Maimonides also writes, he says, the most important thing to do when you move to a city right, is that it has a Jewish school. It's a Jewish school. If there's no Jewish school, you can't move to the city. You can't. And then even writes, if, if there's no Jewish school, right, you can't teach your kids Torah, right? You got to burn down the city. If there's a Jewish city, you know, without a Jewish school, you got to burn down the city. That's it. This is not a city that, you know why? And, and, and it's not just about burning down the city. It's, a, it's the idea. Judaism will perpetuate. Judaism will continue so long as it has Jewish learning. Once you disassociate the Jewish uh, individual or Jewish community, from Jewish learning, well, then that community's days are numbered. And it's an unfortunate reality. We find this again and again as a pattern throughout history that where the people were lax in their Torah study, everything else followed, unfortunately. So let's, let's go through the reasons here. We'll find some kind of interesting you know, reasons that we find of, of why we study Torah. So who can think of a good reason why we study Torah? Okay, I like that. What else? Changes your character. Okay. What what's the simplest reason? Blueprint for life. Is all the basic. That's not simple. Blueprint for life is not simple. No, I mean it's a, all the basic things you guys are great. You guys do the class yourself. But. It's about teaching you how to behave, how to act, how to be a you know. What you got? <laughs> it gives me clarity. 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 That's great. See, we have a lot of reasons. We just came up with like five reasons. You want to add something? Oh, so it's just, it's a guidebook. Just how to live as a Jew. See, these are six reasons. We, we can stop here, right? Um, so I have reason number one is that it's a mitzvah. It's, it itself is one of the rules. You know, and you do a mitzvah like you were at tzitzis, and you, you, know, you eat matzah and Passover because it's a mitzvah, and you study Torah because it's a mitzvah. You know? And what's actually very interesting that the Talmud says about this, and it, it kind of sheds light on what the relationship that Jews have with Torah study, is that the Talmud points out that the Torah... Torah itself says that Torah itself study, the study of Torah itself, is a mitzvah. So think about that. The, you read the Torah, and the Torah says, oh, study the Torah, that's a mitzvah. Yes. Yes, uh, it is. However, it's not explicit. It's not, it's, it, it's a little, it's overt. 
And the Talmud says, wait a minute. Why doesn't the Talmud, why does why the Torah say study Torah? I thought it should put a bitch sign on every page, you know? Study Torah, that's a huge mitzvah. Study Torah, that's a huge mitzvah. So it says that it's crude, it's crass for the Torah to demand that it be studied. Just like a husband and wife, that's what the Talmud says, a husband and wife, uh, for them, for one of them to demand uh, intimacy from their spouse. That's not the way you do things. Be a little bit more crafty, a little more tactful. That's what the Talmud says. And in essence, what the Talmud is, compa- the comparison is that the, 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 the relationship that Jewish people have with the Torah is very similar to the relationship that spouses have with each other, that a husband has with his wife. And in fact, we find that the Talmud says that if someone studies Torah, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Gentiles aren't supposed to study Torah. Why? Because it's as if they're consorting with another man's wife. It's as if the Torah is the spouse of the Jewish people, and it's the Jewish people's. And the Gentile comes and says, I want a part of this. It's, no, no, wait a minute. This is a married woman, which is an insane idea. And it says, like, if a Gentile studies Torah, well, it's as if he's sleeping with a married woman. But what it does tell us is that the relationship that we have with Torah is not just knowledge that we have on the bookshelf, it's in our lives. It's the deepest, most intimate relationship we can have. Not only that, and what's the first description that, 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 that the Almighty gives Adam, uh, or about Adam, that, uh, for a wife? What's the first description of the wife of, of, of Adam? Huh? No, what's the description of her? It's not good for a man to be alone. God says, I will make them. I will make him. He'll have a helpmate. Man is not going to go through life alone. He'll have a spouse. They'll, do, they'll, 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 they'll live their lives together. We could say perhaps, if we extend the analogy a little further, we're, we're here. We're, we're a man. And we're dropped into the earth. It's not good for us to go throughout life in this journey all alone. We need help. We need someone to be there with us. So, of course, we have a spouse, but humanity at large needs help as well. You know, if you just give humans just the world without any, you know, without any instruction, well, then a lot of terrible things are going to happen. We see, we, we see so much cruelty, uh, we see so much evil in the how in the that in, as a result of man. Right? You can't do this alone. Right? Life is a very challenging, perplexing, vexing place. And humans, if they were all alone, well, then they, they have no chance. You know, the Torah is there to help us, right? With the Torah, with this helpmate, we can succeed in life. Ed, you had something to say. Yeah, I was going to say, when you said Gentiles aren't supposed to study the Torah, Gentiles include Christians? Well... Because the Torah is part of the Christian Bible also. Uh, well... Where does it say that? It says that in the Talmud? Yes, in the Talmud. It says it in the Talmud. Um... Yeah, well, there's certain parts that are that are for everyone. Um, it's said for Jews, you know, the Torah is instruction, but for Jews. Um, I think what the practical relevance for that would be probably that um, that uh, the Jews shouldn't teach it, shouldn't go around to churches and go give lectures in Torah. I mean, I mean, Gentiles used to be before Christianity. Christians used to study the Torah. 
abrogated the law. Yeah, but you know, the Torah is telling us we can't teach. Well, we're going to go govern what the Christians to do and can't do. Really, <laughs> how's that worked out for us in the past? <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so, but from the Jewish perspective, this is the Jewish Torah. You know, so when I, you know, when you, I meet people and they say, oh, they see a yarmulke and they see tzitzis, they start asking questions. You know, I, I sometimes tell them, listen, you know, this is Torah. And it's, it's the Jewish people's Torah. I can't tell you why we wear fringes. You know, I do that also just to rile them up a little bit. <laughs> but, but, you know, but that's true. Can. Well, I can what? I, well, is I don't know. Listen, it's not one of the fundamental principles. It's not one of the 13 principles of, of Judaism. But that idea is, is a true idea. The Torah is the birthright of the Jewish people. You know, it's, and it's, it's, it's ours, you know. Does that mean that we, you know, we can't teach Gentiles anything? And of course not. Um, it just, I think a practical application of this would be is that we don't open up Talmud classes in churches. We don't do that. I had friends and colleagues of mine that would teach, the, teach Gentiles. Everyone in the room is a Gentile. Um, but he would teach them things that are relevant to them, you know, like Noahide laws and, you know, ethical laws and, you know, things that are relevant to them, you know. You teach a Gentile about a sukkah, well, they're not Jewish. They don't have a mitzvah to sit a sukkah or shake a lula. It's not meant for them, you know. But either way, this idea of, of comparing the Torah to a spouse, I think, is a very interesting idea that, you know, maybe throughout the course of the discussion, uh, maybe we'll revisit uh, again, or at least the topics will overlap. Uh, and like was said, uh, you know, we have to, that's the first reason. The first reason we started Torah is a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah. The mitzvah is not explicit, but it's a mitzvah. Fantastic. Um, I think another reason that would like was mentioned, um, Torah's instructions. The word Torah means hora'ah, hora'ah means an instruction. An instruction because, you know what, as Jews, you know, you know when we, we or Abraham accepted upon himself the mantle of leadership and the mantle of responsibility for the entire world. We said we're going to do whatever it takes. And the Torah is the outlines of what it takes. What does it take to live as a Jew? Right? What is the instructions? What is the manual for living as the people that are going to change the world? That's the mission we accepted upon themselves. And these are the instructions of how we're going to do it. And you know what? Everything that you buy, I, I bought recently a little... In my pocket, little, little Bluetooth headset, right? A little piece of technology, fantastic, wonderful, right? I keep my pocket so people shouldn't think I'm always on the phone, right? I, actually, I told my students um, that I think as I mentioned this last week that when you're praying, you want to talk to God, but not in a synagogue or anything like that, you know. But you, you know, you want to just talk to God, just in English, right? So you, you put this on, and you just start talking. Everyone assumes you're talking into the Bluetooth. Either way, you buy the Bluetooth and and uh, <laughs> and and there's instruction manual and every piece of electric you buy you buy a mouse that it it's branded you just plug in the USB but there's instructions everything you buy has instructions you buy toasters instructions right loss of life or limb can result of improper usage or something like that you know everything has instructions. You know, and the more complex the item, the more complex the instructions. So, you know, the uh, unfortunately we had a spate of robberies in our neighborhood. People were going into cars, opening up cars, and taking stuff, going through the dashboard. So the guy went into my car and opened up the dashboard and put, took everything out and then took my car manual. 
this big lumbering car manual, and then he took it and walked halfway down the block, and it just dropped on the floor, and he realized it wasn't money. And I'm like, this is a pretty hefty manual because it's a pretty sophisticated bit of machinery, you know. So uh, as you go from this, right, Bluetooth to toaster to washing machine to car, the manual gets thicker and thicker. If you move on to, I don't know, a jumbo jet or the International Space Station or something like that, it gets way, way bigger. You know, it must, you know, it must look like the Obamacare law, you know, 27,000 pages or whatever. And, and we're thrown into the world and we, we have a whole life. We have a, we have a world and we have, we have everything. Like we're so, it's so inf, inf, you know, infinitely complex, the world that we're in. Is it possible the Almighty threw us in here without an instruction manual? Just you're on your own. Go figure it, figure it out yourself. Figure out what to plug and where. No, that's not possible. You know, and we say the Torah, like like was mentioned, the Torah is the instruction manual. Uh, and if we want to maximize life, you know, we want to have the optimal results of this wonderful opportunity that we that we call life. Well, then let's try to take the manual and read all the fine print and and actually actually do it. You know, because unfortunately we have those guys. You know, the people say. You know, they throw out the, it's like when you have to assemble like furniture, complicated, like a bunk bed or something like that. And there's so many different pieces. You have to first outline all the pieces. So there's two kinds of ways of doing it. There's the guy who says, nah, I don't need the instructions. I'll figure it out. And then three, yeah, it's me too. And then three hours later, it's like, no, 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 it's, it's the wrong side, it's un, right? And you got you to gotta undo that. And you got to twist those things until your hands almost fall off, right? Or... You organize it all. Okay, these are the different parts. And this is the plan. You follow the instructions one after another. You don't try to skip any steps. That's you. And then you get it done. And you get the, and it's frustrating because you got to read all these instructions. But you figure it out and it's done. But you don't have to do it three times. You don't have to do it three times. <laughs> and you know what? And I would say it's behind, it's behind your back. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, no, you lean forward. Lean forward. <laughs> Sorry. So, and like you know what I'll tell you? Just... Bring your thought full circle. Um, I don't want to go down this path and talk about this at great length, but the idea of reincarnation is in Jewish, for sure in Kabbalah, but in, in Jewish philosophy. Perhaps what you're saying is exactly how it works. If you do it right the first time, you don't have to do it again three times. I don't know, man. Well, who knows? I the hope the question is, you know, what's, what's good enough? How do you know how many times? And if you probably may never know, and it's not, it's not, it's not relevant. So that's that. You really have those experiences? Tell me more. So like, but I, I have those experiences where like I'm in a situation or a scenario or whatever where I feel like I've been there before, right. but not like historically. Like I don't remember the Civil War or anything like that. Well, maybe we were before the Civil. War. Maybe, but I I some I, I feel like sometimes I have these foreboding, like a dream, and then like two months later you're in a life situation and suddenly a bunch of things happen and you know it's weird. Um. I don't know, man. I'm not saying that there's something there, but I'm certainly not sure that there's nothing there. <laughs> yeah. Well, the Talmud says that a dream is a 60th of prophecy. 
That's a small, it's one and a half percent. That's a good question, but if you, you'll see a pattern in the Talmud that one-sixtieth is a number that's used frequently. For example, sleep is one-sixtieth of death. You know, if you have one drop of milk and 60 parts meat, things fine. So one-sixtieth is always used as a number of not insignificant, but not significant enough. That's the first time I've heard that. Well, there you go. There's in the Torah then. Yeah. Well, there you go. So there's a f- Well, no, you could eat sixty ounces. You could drink. You could drink the one ounce of milk and six, that's a lot of meat. But um, that's fine. It means you could have meat directly after having milk. You know, I want to wait ten minutes or wash out your mouth. But the problem is the reverse. Or the problem is with a pot. You know, if you have a pot full of meat. And a little drop of milk drops in. Well, then the pot's still fine. It's still fine if it's one drop, you know, and there's in a whole pot. But if it's more than one sixtieth, then it becomes strange. Well, that's just the way the Torah says it. Um, the Torah, in a lot of in a lot of the areas of kosher, doesn't give us any guidance. It doesn't tell us. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's 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 a good reason. But the whole idea of milk and meat. You know, does God really care that we have milk and meat? That's a common question that you ask. But the truth is, does God really care to eat pork? Is that so important to God? Or if you, you shake a lulav or eat matzah, that's not what God cares about. It's what God tells us as having the recipe or the instructions to have the most meaningful life. And uh, we have the option whether or not we want to listen. We don't have to know the answer. And some things we know the answer, some things we realize, some things we don't. And that's okay. That's, that's just a reflection of our limited intellect, and that's fine. You know, it's, if someone created a brain like the Almighty did, maybe they have more intelligence than uh, maybe what we have. Well, if you could reach your intelligence. And maybe you would have a, you would, you'd have a better, better shot, you know. And you know what? The, if studying the Torah, that's one of the next ones. Uh, will sharpen and hone your brain, make you gain access to other parts of the brain, and other powers and abilities, capabilities of, of your intelligence. So hold on to that thought. That's number two, I say. Number one, and we're starting from the simplest one. It's a mitzvah, okay, fantastic. Uh, it's an uh, it's, it's instruction manual. And another one is to receive reward, you know. Um, and why am I saying that? I'm saying that because the Talmud says that. To receive reward. I'm saying that because the Talmud says the Talmud says that there's three mitzvahs in the Torah that are situations that never happened and never will happen. What are these three situations? Ben Sorer Umoreh, the wayward and rebellious son, is a 13-year-old boy who eats a certain amount of meat and drinks a certain amount of wine and is, hangs out with bad company and steals from his family, whatever, and he gets executed. That's the situation. And Talmud says this ha- never happened, never will happen. There's so many different elements of 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 um, uh, uh, so so many criteria uh, of of this situation it never happened never will happen. Okay, so why is it written? Derosh v'kabel schar. Learn it and gain reward. Now, what the reward is, we'll hold off on that thought. Uh, the second example of this is a saras on the house. We had last week we read the parsha saras, the skin affliction. 
that if someone spoke Hoshon Hara, they would get the skin affliction on their body, on their garments, on their clothing, and on their house. And Talmud, the, the Torah describes what happens. You've got to call the Kohen in. You've got to, all these details. You've got to take apart the house and make, destroy the house, whatever. Never happened, never will happen. Lastly is a city that uh, uh, descends into idolatry. The entire Jewish city, everyone does idolatry. No one even has a single mezuzah in it. The city's burned. Three mitzvahs that Torah talks about and describes. It gives all the laws, but never happened, never will happen. So why is it written? Learn and gain reward. Well, what reward? So it could be that it's just the generic reward. You know, we know that our actions create spiritual realities that we're able to consume in a spiritual world. Thus, every mitzvah the Talmud says makes a spiritual angel, a positive angel, like a defense attorney. And every sin creates a prosecuting attorney. Because on the spiritual side, the, our actions and our deeds and even our thoughts and our words, they have real tangible implications. We don't see that because we're living on the physical plane. But, uh, uh, but you know, the idea of, of olam haba is consumption. The idea of olam haba is a place where it's just the spiritual uh, just the spiritual realm, and therefore there's no body and there's no actions of the body, and all we see is the, is the realities of the spiritual and of the soul. And therefore, well, what does someone do? What, what, what uh, differentiates people from each other? Well, then the spiritual. And the spiritual accomplishments that we have here are what's going to nourish us over there. So that's a simple understanding of, 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 of what it means reward. Reward, because any good deed you do creates a spiritual reality that you, you have with you for eternity. Or we could say that spiritual that the reward is just like someone else mentioned that the reward teaches us ideas, teaches us philosophies, teaches us lessons, teaches us ethics, teaches us morals that could are rewarding because it teaches us you know even though this particular scenario of these three examples never actually plays out in reality, but the lessons behind and the lessons that are underpin these core ideas are ideas that we could use as an example. What I mean here, we have on our board um, the uh, uh, Dr. Rosenstock, Harvey Rosenstock, and he wrote an article in some psychiatry uh, publication where he talked about the wayward and rebellious son, and he analyzed some of the uh, criteria and mitzvahs and aspects of the mitzvah that are so crucial for raising children. So what he did is he took the lessons of Ben Soromer, of a wayward and rebellious son, and he derived the reward. Because even though this actual scenario has never happened, but uh, the lessons and the core idea of how a child is raised and how that's going to impact their behavior, well, that can be very useful for us throughout the course of our lives. You know, we could get an entire lesson on pedagogy from reading the story of Ben Soromer. You know, and that's not just this. Torah teaches us. Torah gives us reward that we can uh, that we can have with us for the rest of our lives. And now we reach. We're getting, we're picking up steam, guys. Everyone's ready to settle down here. <clears throat> okay. We find in the introduction of the book called the Chinuch. Chinuch means education. There's a book called the Book of Education. This was written in the 13th century. And this book sets out to enumerate the 613 mitzvahs. 
we know that the Torah has 613 mitzvahs. Well, what exactly are the 613? So he starts from beginning, from Genesis, and counts the three mitzvahs in Genesis, and moves on in order of the Torah, counting from beginning to end the mitzvahs of the Torah. That's the chiluk. He has an introduction. And in his introduction, he asks the question, why do we have Torah? Good question. That's an open-ended question. Why do we have Torah? He describes uh, as follows. He says, the Almighty created three kinds of creations or uh, creatures. There's the angels. Angels are just spiritual. They don't have any physical. Therefore, an angel is not bound by instincts. You know, if I go like this, boom. Did you blink? He's stoic. There you go, you blinked. Right? You didn't make a conscious, a cogent, a... A, you know, a, a cognitive decision to blink. It's an instinct. Right. That instinct is not linked to your intelligence. It's just your body. Your body has instincts. And, you know, when you're hungry, you're, you want to eat. And, you know, and, and you just, you have a body, thus you're governed by the body. You know? Angels don't have that. It's pure instinct. Uh, pure intelligence. Pure soul. Animals, well, they don't have a soul. Right? They're pure instinct. You know, they're just physical. You know, they're just material. And then you have humans, and humans are half angel, half animal. The humans are half intelligence, we have a soul, right? We have the spiritual, but we also have the animalistic, uh, the, the instinctual animal side, physical side of us. We're half body, half soul, half angel, half beast. That's what we are. We're a mix. And this mix is not a really a healthy mix. Why? Because our body is the opposite of our soul, and our soul is the opposite of the body. And it's not really, they shouldn't be together, really. They're opposites. And God forced you. You know, it's like, it's like two, op- you take the, uh, the sides of the magnet, and you turn it around, and they push each other away. That's what it's like. But God takes these two opposites and wraps them up together, wraps them, wraps them, wraps them, you're together. Emalasot. You're, you're bound together. In fact, the uh, Midrash even says that, um, Every second, souls want to escape the body. Every single second. Want to escape the body. And what happens when a soul leaves the body? That's right, you're dead. As well. And every second, God forces the soul to to remain. Why? Because physiologically, the soul and the body have no no business being associated with each other. But that's what the Almighty decided. And in our life, our life is going to be determined, our success or failure in life is going to be determined by the breakdown of this relationship. What do I mean by that? Um, We are going to be in eternal conflict. Not not eternal, but perpetual conflict. Because we have the influence of the body. We have the, the instinctual side of our body, of our physical and we have the spiritual and intellectual side of our soul. And these things have different ideas of what to do about life. And these things are in constant combat, in combat, in constant conflict, internal conflict. And that's, uh, that is why, you know, humans are, you know, you have such a wide spectrum of, of, of evil and on one hand and righteous on the other hand and good and bad because... Every, every person, every individual is in this war of free will uh, where they have to make choices are to favor their body or to favor their soul. 
And the greatest person is someone whose soul and body, right, are in harmony because the body is uplifted to be like the soul. Right? And the influence of the soul, right, changes the body. As opposed to the, the wicked person is someone whose body influences the soul. So as an example of this idea, we find in the Talmud, back to the Talmud, that says that there's 903 levels of death. Have you heard this, this idea? The Talmud in Masechet Brachot, in the book of Brachot, page 8a. Chetavchet Amud Aleph. 903 levels of death. And the best kind of death is like pulling a hair out of a glass of milk. Kind of frictionless. And the worst kind of death is like pulling thorns out of out of out of out of out of a sheep's wool. Very naughty. Like if you can imagine, a bunch of thorns get stuck. You know, sheep is running, get stuck in a bunch of thorns. Well, to pull the thorns out, you know, you'll have little bits of of wool on the thorns, little bits of thorn left in. The body and the soul. That's what that's what humans are. You know, when we start off life, that the body and soul are like really, you know, they're really opposites. And they're different, they're distinct. You know, the soul is still pure. The body is the body. And now they're together. Okay, now what the choices that someone makes, that's going to impact, well, what's going to be to the soul, what's going to be to the body? How are these two going to correlate? If someone made sure that his soul and his body, or the soul was not influenced by his body, he didn't sin, he didn't give in to those instincts, he didn't follow his whims, Right? He maintained the purity of the soul. The soul still remains distinct. He could just pull it out, no problem. He dies a kind of a frictionless death. On the other hand, if the soul gets enmeshed in all the nonsense of the body, and the influence of the soul right, is waned, the influence of the body takes over the soul, they get mixed up together in this nest, well, then to separate them is a big deal. Because the soul and the body are kind of intermeshed with each other. That's uh, an idea of, of what it looks like at the end, you know, once the point of death comes, well, well, how do we separate these two? Well, the way we separate them is to, you know, by or the 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 state uh, or the nature of the separation of the two is going to be a reflection of the life that this person lived. Now, if that is the breakdown of our body and soul, we have to make sure that we want to hone and sharpen soul to preserve it right because if you have a battle you want to strengthen it's kind of like when the you know like when when you want to arm your allies right you want to make sure that the allies are are well equipped for the battle torah says the chinuch says the book of education is the greatest pencil sharpener for the intelligence when you study Torah and you study on a deep level, not surface level, you know, and in, in this breakneck class, it's all about digging deeper. You know, it's challenging yourself. It's trying to ask questions, trying to analyze it. But once you move on to the Talmud and you move to advanced Talmud, like you're studying Torah to such a degree that your brain hurts, like your head physically hurts, you know, that is just creating these, 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 these intellectual titans, these mental giants. Because they're just sharpening and sharpening and sharpening and sharpening their brain. It's like you have this brain that's like a sharp machete, like it just razor sharp. You know, that's the result of someone who invests their life in Torah study. And you know what? When it comes to the battle of the body and the soul, 
or the body and the intelligence, who's overmatched? Who has the chances of, of, of surviving this, this battle? Someone like that, who the Torah sharpened their soul, sharpened their intelligence to such a degree, you know, where it's just razor sharp, well, then they have a, they have a fighter's chance, you know? Then they're much more likely to succeed in this life goal. Um, you know, I always used to say that, so there's in Israel, there's a lot of um, political and social uh, tension between the different groups of Jews that live there. You have uh, a lot of, you know, uh, different kinds of Zionists, for example, you have the religious Zionists, and then you have the more nationalistic Zionists, that already existed for a hundred years. You have the, you have the, you know, the, you know, just how to deal with the Arabs. That's a big question. Very different attitudes on the right and the left of the political spectrum in Israel. But also, you have a lot of, especially nowadays, a lot of tension between the religious community and the secular community. Uh, why? Because, you know, what role does the state play in, you know, in religion? You know, so does. Do yeshiva students who dedicate their lives to Torah study, well, do they have to go to the army or not? That's a big, big question right now that's that's facing you know the Israeli public. Because on one hand, yes, you know, we want to support Torah as for Jewish learning, but also what about going to the army? And what about the responsibilities of of defending the state? You know, and different people have different, you know, attitudes towards towards that uh to that to that quagmire. Um and this, you know, this plays out in other ways. So I have a solution to all of this. <clears throat> my solution is that um, I, I think that, from my experience uh, in 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 yeshivas in Israel, I, I have met some of the people with astounding intelligence. Now I I consider myself somewhat uh, uh, capable uh, intellectually. Okay, maybe we all do, maybe we all don't, whatever. But I, I have met people, I have studied with people that just are remarkably intelligent, like just insanely intelligent. And not is, is it because they have such high-powered brains? Maybe yes, but maybe it, they have decent intelligence from the get-go, but they perfected it and they honed it and they sharpened it to such a degree that they're just, you present an idea to, to a Torah scholar and they're very quickly able to divest it of, uh, you know, of its, uh, of, of the, of the, you know, to strip away the external and get to the core idea, you know. And it, it takes seconds as opposed to analyzing it over weeks, you know, because that's what they do. That's what Torah study is. You know, you study the Talmud and you always try to get to the core underlying principle. And you do that again and again, day and night. Well, then you know how to do that. Your, your, your mind is crafted and owned for that important skill. So you have this tremendous talent, and that's a talent that's born out of Torah study. Uh, and they want to continue Torah study, but they, I think they should also contribute to the state. I mean, that's a very fair request. So mine is like this. You ready? I think it should take yeshiva students, yeshiva, the, yeshiva, the yeshiva schedule. Uh, there's 10 weeks that there's vacation a year. There's three during the holidays of Sukkot. There's three in the summer, three weeks in the summer, there's four weeks uh, for the holiday of Pesach. Ten weeks during the year, the yeshiva, every yeshiva, universally, they're all, they're all closed. 
my idea is that during these 10, 10 weeks, we have seminars for yeshiva students on the most problematic problems facing the world. I want advanced physics. I want biology. I want mathematics. I want finance. I want everything, you know, overpopulation or underpopulation, the jail problem, laws, everything. Obamacare. Put it all. Put it all on the docket, and just have these seminars. And then in like twelve hours, give them all the important, relevant facts and let them dice it over. And then these remarkable intelligence, you know, what they know how to, you know, they just they, their mind is not. It's not corrupted. You know, they have no skin in the game. And then they could just pounce on a topic and just you know, fix all the problems that humanity has. And then after those three weeks, they go back to the yeshivas. They all go back. You know, and, and then everyone wins. It's a brilliant idea, no? Except the people who really make the decisions probably wouldn't accept it. Well, maybe. But maybe yes. You know, if, if someone... Their soul is not no, but you know, but uh, you like the idea? Everyone likes the idea? Yeah. Should, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's my idea. Not poor, not poor. These are the happiest people on the planet. So, where do you go? They get no vacation. I don't know. I'm <laughs> telling you guys about it. <laughs> They'll be spending their vacation time. So, I, so had, I want to hear you make a commitment. I had uh, I had a guy, I one of one of my friends in yeshiva in Israel, and he told he's like he told me like even during the vacation he studies Torah eight hours a day. Like, eight, eight hours is a lot. Like he had four hours in the morning, four hours in the afternoon. Or, it's a lot of time, but like David was like no big deal, like because that's what he wants to do. Like he wants to study Torah. He doesn't like that's that's fun for them, you know. Uh, which is remarkable, but like you know, okay, so maybe that I think would be a nice, uh, uh, you know, midway point. You meet him halfway. You know. Right, right. I think they should serve the state, serving the army. Like you don't want to have some feeble yeshiva guy. You know, some five foot four yeshiva guy. He, he's not a warrior, right? Not all but he. Five foot four, you know? Some of them are, some of them aren't. But you know, even in Israel, even even in the army, the vast majority of the soldiers are not combat soldiers. So put them on, uh, I don't know, chemical weapons or whatnot. Let them figure it out. So the problem with that is. Interesting question. The problem with that is, is that that question, the question of what to do with the Arabs, if you throw it in yeshiva, they won't approach it from a geopolitical perspective. They'll approach it from a Torah perspective. Right? And that's not going to be something which is, means in, 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 in areas like, um, uh, like the math and the science where it is, it is what it is, I think there, this kind of intelligence is, is better suited, as opposed to where there's so many other factors that are not, you know, uh, no, they're not hard facts. That you know that are that are you know if you don't if you have, don't have a relationship with the foreign minister of Russia, well then maybe you don't know anything about whatever you know. 
So that's, I think, a little bit different. The political science is, is probably a little bit a little bit different. But I think I think mathematics, you know, these guys can figure it out. <laughs> guys spend their time studying the most challenging uh, information, most difficult corpus in all of human history. They can figure out some mathematics problem that some you know that some you know some genius mathematician you know has a hard time, provided that they have a strong baseline in in, in the basics. And in Israel, everybody when they turn eighteen. Time out for what they're doing. They may want to go to medical school or law school or something else. It's going to take a lot of study. Going through a tutor, you can take the same amount of time. Well, we could all we could all come up with solutions to that problem. This is just, I think, a creative way to make everyone happy because that will make the yeshiva guys happy. Is anyone want to stay? We don't want to go to the army, right? That 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 that's a solution, maybe, but that's not a solution that that we could necessarily foist upon anyone. And the other solution maybe is not acceptable for everyone. You know, I want to I want a way well, to make everyone happy. Okay, so that's a good argument. I'm not, it's not it's not it's not it's a very legitimate argument. I'm not trying to to you know to downplay that argument. That's a very you know, and I think even Ben Gurion, uh, he had a series of letters with him and Rabbi Herzog, the first chief rabbi of Israel, and that's one of the things that he argues. And I think it's a good argument. You know, why should one mother uh, have to worry about her son in combat? You know, and the other one doesn't. I don't think that that's an illegitimate question. I think it's a very, very legitimate point. Um, on one hand, but there's the argument, like, you know, there's, for example, like if you accept the Torah as being true, and you accept the Talmud as being real, well, the Talmud talks about how uh, Torah scholarship and Torah study, and, and, and that saves humanity. You know, one of the things that I didn't, we didn't get up to yet, um, one of the reasons why we study Torah is to save the world. Because there's abundance of sources that say that if for even one second there was no one studying Torah in the world, the entire world would, would cease to exist. I know there, was, there were these great uh, personalities in, in, in the Jewish communities that would always spend the, f- the first two hours after Yom Kippur studying Torah. Because that's a lull, that's a down period. Because everyone's like so famished for Yom Kippur that people aren't studying. So the people say, okay, I'm going to be the one because there's not so many people studying Torah right now. There's got to be somebody, you know. And, and in, in the in the in the yeshiva, the great yeshiva in Valajan, the very first of the modern yeshivas uh, in the 19th century, they had a 24 hour, 24 seven. There was someone studying Torah, 24 seven. They parsed out the, the the week, and they say, if the entire world takes the time off, we're going to be here to save the world, you know. So that, you know, in the eyes of the people um, that are studying Torah, to them, they're doing even more. Then the Arab, the, 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 not the Arabs, and then the soldiers, you know, manning some, you know, some Moshav and, you know, not, not to belittle that, but in their eyes, they're doing even more to save Israel. You know, and, and to, to say that that's not a legitimate perspective, well, then, you know, that's, that, that's also something that has to be taken into account. So that's why it's, it's, if it's diametric op, diametrically opposite perspectives uh, that each have something to base that upon, that's where you have this conflict. My idea is just this cutesy idea to, to make everyone happy. You don't, you don't, you don't disrupt the, the yeshiva cycle, and the, 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 the guys they, they do their they they, they they do their community service, and and we solve cancer and whatever everything else. Yes, of course. Do, what do you mean? Well, that's what. Who, who should do that? 
who should do that? No, there's plenty of there's plenty of of no the the question of 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 these shiva students uh, um, uh, serving in the army is not about you know just having more numbers. It's about why should one segment of the population, uh, you know, endanger themselves while other the other one is sits, you know, they sit around and, and study old books. That's the argument. Well, they have ten weeks off a year. They can... no what? They have ten weeks off a year. They can you know, do the weekend study. They Maybe. That's also a good argument. Say, hey, if you want, if you want, you, if you don't want to uh, go to the army, go to Shiva as well. Uh, it's, it's funny when I was in basic training on a Saturday morning in the service, mm-hmm. I got out of half a day. Nice. Now, I did. I was one of about three Jews in there who was actually in the army. All the rest of them were not in the army. We really get drafted. I was drafted before I had a number. I was already in the Army when I came out of the lottery thing. On my birthday, I would have been already in the Army. Be in the system? Crazy, huh? All to fight this senseless war, huh? So, so that's my idea, guys. Will the wall be planned? I'm going to turn on four. Let's go. Let's turn on Yeah, we have a lot more to go. <laughs> uh, um, okay, so let's let's do the next one here. Um, next one to be split into into a few of them. So we have what's called the Yetzahara. Yetzahara is, is is an idea that appears very often in in Jewish writing, and it's it's this force. That exists within us that compels us to sin, and you'll say, "Wait a minute, why do we have that?" And that's by design, right? Because otherwise, if we don't have any urge to sin, then our abstinence from sin it doesn't mean anything, right? If you know, if you have zero interest in doing it, then the fact that you were able to withhold from doing it doesn't mean anything. But one of the chief responsibilities of us in our lives is to overcome our temptations. How do we do that? Well, <laughs> that's a simplification, you know. <laughs> so we find in the Talmud a bunch of different um, ideas, suggestions. Uh, for example, we find the idea of stalling. Start even earlier. Avoidance. Right? Avoid the Yetzirah. As an example, uh, we know that Ruvain, the firstborn son, we just read that in Genesis, right? his father tells him, listen, I'm going to give you a blessing. Okay, blessing. Blessing time. Fantastic. Ruvain, your blessing is, well, you were very swift like water uh, and you made a mistake and therefore you're not going to be the king, you're not going to be the priest. If I tell you, hey, listen, Ruvain, right now you're the oldest firstborn, you're supposed to be the king, you're supposed to be the priest. I'm going to give you a blessing. You want a blessing? Yeah, yeah. Oh, sure, you want a blessing? Fantastic. The blessing is you're not going to be the king. And you know what? You're not going to be the priest. 
Does that sound like a blessing? Does not sound like, sounds like a curse. Or said this is a blessing. So my grandfather said, I'm sure my brother mentioned this, that it's a blessing to know how to live your life in a way that you're not going to encounter your particular uh, evil inclination, malady that you have. You know, Ruvain was impetuous. He made decisions without properly weighing all the sides. He was swift like water. He didn't think. Right? The water just automatically just goes. It doesn't say, uh, should I drop? Uh, yeah, I'll drop. No, it just goes. And therefore, what happens to a king who makes decisions like that? How many wars do we cause, you know, uh, if you have a king that doesn't have, you know, the proper deliberation before making decisions? Similarly, if you have a priest who has to do very delicate, very sensitive activities in the temple, well, what happens when they don't do that? They just act impulsively and knee-jerkly. Knee-jerkly even worse. They act like a knee-jerk. They react knee-jerkedly. Uh, to situations, well then, so indeed it's a great blessing because now he lives his life in a way that he avoids the situation. So that's an example of, of how we're supposed to go about dealing with the Yitzhara, uh, to avoid it. And number two, we find this to stall. There's a great story about this, but let's, let's skip that. Huh? To procrastinate, exactly. Right? Um, uh, to, we have, we find uh, to forget or to eliminate them. Lots of different stories in the Talmud where it says well, what he did. Um, I'll tell you the story. So the story is about this great rabbi who is being uh, seduced by this Roman noblewoman and she'll sleep with him. Good. And then he says to her, um, do you have something to eat? So she says, yeah, well, I do, but it's not kosher. Remember this? You did read this? I do, but it's not kosher. So he says, what do I care? I'm about to do a sin. What's the two sins? What's the big deal? So she turns on the oven, and she puts the food to heat up the food. And then what does he do? He jumps in the oven. He's like, dude, why are you in the oven? He says, oh, because I just remember that whoever's about to do what I'm about to do, they get thrown in the fire. That's what he says. Then she says, oh, and she let him off the hook. So the question is, like, if you analyze the story, okay, says, give me food. He seems like he's acquiescing to his desire, but then he says, give me food. And she says, well, I don't have any food. Uh, not only kosher food. He says, okay, make it anyhow. What's this whole thing with food? You know, you want to, suddenly he gets hungry. Ah, oh, suddenly I need like a hot dog or, you know. So the commentators point out that no, he had a very strong desire to sin. And instead of saying, I'm not doing it, he said, you know what, I'll do it, just let me eat first. He pushed it off, he stalled. And by doing that, he gave himself some time to come to his senses. And then we see at what he used, he used imagery of the fire to, to help him get out of that situation. Another example of how uh, the Talmud teaches us how we're supposed to go about uh, doing that. Um, channel it. If someone has a very strong desire, well, then you channel it. How does that work? So we find the following statement. If the Yetzer Hara attacks you, pull him to the house of study, pull him to the base of Right? If this one attacks you, they pull him to the house of study, i.e. go study Torah. Question is, if I told you, hey, there's a, a, a mugger, after you, right? He pulls a gun at you. 
What's your proper response? Not a good, let's call it a nice. What's the response? The response is to flee. Not to grab him alone with you, right? If the evil inclination is a terrible force, right? Or grab him and bring him with you to the house. Why would you bring him with you? You should leave him, abandon him in the street, and go run to the temple to, to, to the house of study by yourself. The answer is what the Talmud is telling you is that you have to channel the forces of evil to use that for good. Well, how do you use your evil inclination for good? That we find elsewhere where um, the Zohar says that if Zohar is the uh, Kabbalah 101 book, the book of, of Kabbalah. So the Zohar writes that if someone did not have uh, a desire for promiscuity, then they would not have any fun learning Torah. Now I say promiscuity and Torah don't seem to go together really that well. But if someone did not have the desire for promiscuity, then he wouldn't have any fun learning Torah. The idea is that there's a certain passion that could be used for good or for bad. And it depends how you channel it. If you channel it for evil, well, then it'll be evil. If you channel it for good, well, then it'll, then it'll be good. But if you don't have it, you'll have not the evil, not the good. Thus, when it's saying that this Yetzirah attacks you, don't abandon it and run to the base Medrash. And take it. Harness the power, but channel it to good. Another example of how the Talmud tells you to... Huh? That's awful. Yeah. Well, it's... You'd rather have the promiscuity? <laughs> How come you picked up on that one? <laughs> so, uh, so that's 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 And then we find in the Talmud the following it says, "Barati Yetzer Hara, Barati Torah Tavlin." I created the Yetzer Hara. God saying, "I created the Yetzer. I created the Torah as an antidote." And the word Tavlin means either an antidote. Or it also means a spice. Now, the idea being, wherein the Torah is the antidote, is the opposite of, of the Yitzhara. If you have one, you don't have to worry about the other one. If you have Torah, it doesn't bother you at all. Right? Just like if you have the antidote. If you have, you know, if you have the if you have the medication, you know, if if you it's an, if you you know, if you have, just think about this, if you have the vaccination. You have the cure, then you have no problem walking through the danger. Danger doesn't doesn't affect you. Uh, now, how that works is a fascinating idea. Well, how does Torah study prevent someone from sin? Uh, perhaps it prevents someone from sin by by. No mathematics here, but the. Maimonides, uh, in the end of the laws uh, of forbidden sexual relationships, he has the following line. He says, There's no thought of promiscuity, only in a heart devoid of scholarship. What he's telling us is that at the core of what it means to study Torah, it means that it, it dominates your minds and your thoughts. Right? When you're deeply invested into an idea of Torah, you're constantly thinking about that. And when your mind is actively working, and you're thinking about something very positive, 
other negative thoughts don't creep in. Thus, the, when someone is involved and someone is submerged in Torah study, they, they know they have nothing to worry about. They have the antidotes. They, uh, the sin doesn't tantalize them because their, their mind is involved in something even more exciting. I'm sorry? No positive. And another, another, um, another interesting uh, idea is we know that Adam was tasked with overcoming a challenge. Yet Adam did not have Torah. So Adam is expected to overcome his challenge, but without the tool of the Torah. How is that possible? How do you expect uh, Adam to do that? What's interesting is that if you look at the, the force of evil that's compelling Adam to sin, what was that in the Torah story? In the Torah story? Snake. The snake is representative of the sin or the, the, the impetus for the sin being external. When the challenge is one where the, 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 the impetus to sin is external, well, then you don't need to then you overcome it on your own. Post the sin, we don't have the snake influence us. It's within ourselves. Therefore, the challenge is much deeper, much harder, right? And therefore, we can only succeed with the Torah. Thus, Adam had no chance with, uh, to overcome our type of challenge without Torah. But he had a much lower level of challenge, thus he didn't need Torah. And in fact, Adam made a very calculated decision. We think of Adam as being some you know, pushover. In truth, Adam made a very important decision by choosing to have a greater degree of difficulty of a challenge, but also have the greater ability of the tool of the Torah to help us overcome that challenge. But if we didn't have the, the Torah, well, then we wouldn't, we wouldn't, you know, then what would our hearts be filled with? You know, there's, there's, there's no way. This is, God said, I created the Sahara, I created the Torah as, as an antidote. So these are, are some, of the, um, some of the ideas um, that we have uh, about, about Torah. A lot more here. Yes, but he... Yeah, he had it because he had it in his soul. He had it. He had it in, in his soul, but he didn't have. He didn't. You know, Adam didn't. He didn't study. He didn't have it externally. Well, he ate from the tree of knowledge. Right. We say that Adam, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they had access to their to the Torah because they uh, they were able to uh, plumb the depths of their soul to access the Torah from it. That's it, you know, it's very hard. It's like, what's easier? Is it easier to fill up gas at the local Exxon station or to dig a hole two miles deep in your backyard and find the gas and distill it yourself? It, it's there. You may, have, you, may, you may have oil, right? But it's much easier to fill up your car. That's a good analogy. Uh, right, what's easier? i got to write across, that one down. Across Texas, you don't buy mineral oil. You don't buy mineral oil. That's right. Maybe it's cheaper to look for gold. You have some mineral rice? Okay, so that's what I, I want to write that down because I want to file. I'll forget it otherwise.
Anyway, guys, um, that, that was fun. There's more that we missed, but I, I have a hard deadline tonight. So thank you all for coming. Uh, I had a very uh, fun time. It was interesting to me. Uh, and I hope you all enjoyed it as well. And well, I appreciate we some that. More classes, yeah. huh? I hope so too, yes. We still have like eight more to do. All right. I'm, thinking, I'm thinking of maybe writing a massive article uh, for Shavuos about this. Yes, my brother will be back next week. And, uh, and uh, yes, uh, but hopefully I'll still be giving you guys some classes and 